welcome to this session. Can I just ask us to say a word of prayer as we, as we start? Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done, how you've instructed us, rebuked us, allowed us to be challenged. And so we invite, Lord, in a special way, your Holy Spirit again, to guide these interactions, that the conversations, Lord, that we'll have, the answers we'll receive, the questions, Lord, that will be asked, everything, Lord, will serve the end, Lord, of furthering and advancing your gospel in our churches and in our cities, all for your glory, in Jesus' name. Um, so, the first question will go to um, Pastor Femi. So, really, just off your talk, the, the first talk. Um, and you mentioned, so while, while you were talking about the gospel and all different elements of the gospel, you did mention that there are differences in the approaches that people had in the scriptures um, with regards to certain elements and how they majored on certain elements. And so, what would you say to someone who feels I hear what you're saying. I agree that there's a robust gospel, but I feel this is my own calling, um, my specific to, for example, um, I'm, I'm an encourager. And so that's why I'm major on. How do you respond to that kind of person? If you're, encourager, if you're an encourager, don't be a pastor. Um, so, and, and, and I mean that not, not in a bad way. So if you read Romans chapter 12, right, um, especially 4, 5, 6, where it talks about the gifts, the gifts that the body is given. One of them, it depends on how you take the word, when it talks about exhorting, one can read it as, as encouraging as well. So if you are a believer, you, um, the spirit is in you, one of the things that the gifts are giving for is to encourage, is to build up people. And so when people are low, it's there to, you're there to lift them up. That's one thing. That's that's a fruit that comes out of your gospel, but uh, of the gospel in your life. However, if you are trying to say that you want to lead a church, or uh, whether you are the pastor there or you are one of the um, pastors there or the leaders, well, you're going to have to do a whole lot more than just encouraging. Um, so your 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 ministry is going to be all encompassing. Take it like a, being a general a general practitioner as a doctor. You're going to have to go through so many different things. You can't. If you want to be a, people who are specialized um, specialized consultants, you don't take someone that is a neurosurgeon and tell them to come and do a brain surgery. I'm sure that would not be very helpful. But a general practitioner is meant to look at the whole picture and is meant to give you know, good solutions. And I think in, in, in ways like that, pastors are they're called to be those. So we do have to major in many different things, but particularly major in the gospel. So, as Paul said, we are set apart for the gospel. But I think the vocation, he's a, he said he's an apostle, called to be an apostle, but then set apart for the gospel. So, we are, most of us, I would say, that are trying to lead churches, we should, we are pastors, but we are set apart for the gospel. So, if you have a particular gift, whether it's more in mercy, whether it's more in um, encouraging, that's fine. But it's another thing to say, that's mine, and that's all I'm doing and then you see that as this church is only for, is an encouraging church, or this church is a, um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that would be right. Um, so th there's another question here. This one is um, specifically from Pastor Toby's talk, but I imagine that Pastor Femi and Pastor Sami would have something to say about this as well. So the question is, how can we do a demographic study of our area? when we do not have information of the group 
or the set of people living in that area from government agencies? Is there any other way we can do that? So, gathering statistics. Well, so I can't speak for this part of the world, um, <laughs> obviously. Um, and so I'll just introduce these guys with the following thought. You know, I, th I think the demographic stuff is, is helpful, um, but oftentimes it's too, it's too broad in any case. It only gives you a city, you know, a, a in general. And I think, you know, in a place like Lagos, typically what we're going for is in any case something much more specific. So you can, you, the, 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 the hard work that needs to be done in terms of actually engaging people on, on street level is not stuff that demographic statistics are going to give you in any case. And I think that's where the, the real meaty stuff is that needs to be dealt with and that needs to shape this kind of preaching to actually reach those people. And so demographics are marginally helpful, but it's, it's literally a starting point. Yeah, and I, I think fundamentally it is actually soaking yourself, soaking yourself in the life of the city, the particular area where you are targeting, just, just getting to know it. Yes, I, I, I would agree. Um, so when, when we were coming to plant the church, one of the things I did was uh, to write a profile of the people that were, we thought that were, that were reaching. Um, I remember a lot of people pushed back and said, no, we should reach everybody. The, the, the church is meant to encompass everyone. Well, actually, that's true. The global church encompasses every single one, right? The global church that Christ has died for, it encompasses people of all races and all socioeconomic um, uh, um, uh, stratas and all of those things. The geographic reality, though, is that even whether you like it or not, geographically, we're already all separated. So you can't reach everybody. And you can't say, well, I'm a church for the city. Well, this city has 20 million people. How many people do you want to have in your church? Even if you're a redeemed Christian church of God, you don't have everyone. And so the way the city is even divided means that you already are reaching people of a socioeconomic di different reality. That sometimes plays into a different intellectual reality. So when we're defining to plant this particular church, we said, oh, it looks like we're going to reach professional islanders. That's what we call them. And so we had a theological profile for them. What is it that most of these people believe? And so we kind of wrote those. Um, they tend to believe they're much more concrete, they're much more practical, so the way they think about the Bible is this. Uh, what is their socioeconomic profile? Well, most of them would have what you call white collar jobs. They work in banks, they work in uh, telecoms and all of those things. Uh, but what, what was... Um, uh, 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 some of their cultural beliefs. Well, some of them, they, they, like to go to, they like to go to the cinema, they like to go to the mall, they like to go and watch uh, certain different things. Now, when we built that, as Toby was trying to show, we then saw exactly what kind of unbelievers they were or what kind of nominal people they were. So that the way you are going to preach to someone like that is going through an addiction is not the same way that you're going to preach to someone who has reached the highest level of their career but still doesn't find satisfaction. Both of them are looking for satisfaction, but they're not trying to get satisfaction in the same way. So by building that profile, you're not just doing it so that you can hang out in nice spots and all of those things. You're trying to know who am I trying to reach so that after you've mastered your gospel, when you're speaking to them, you're creating relationships based on those touch points, and then they start to open up some of the bigger <laughs> sin issues in their lives 
and then you start coming in that way. It affects our preaching. It affects how we build our ministry. So I never want anyone to come here and come and see and try to replicate what we're doing here. I want to ask you, where are you actually being situated? And as Toby saying, no statistical data can give you that. The best they can give you is like uh, what David told us, 72% of those people are out of wedlock. They don't tell you why they're, uh, the children are born out of wedlock. You have to be in the community. You have to be meeting people. You have to be in there. You have to be watching YouTube. You have to be following some of the, the, the people that they follow. Who are these stars? Why do they follow these stars? What are these stars offering? What are some of the songs that they're singing? Why do people connect to those songs? And then as you are thinking about those things, you have to, again, be ruthless about your gospel and scripture. But then that's how you start to speak into them. That's how you start to counter. So I agree with my brothers. There's so much that the statistical data can give you. And as you know, we don't really have statistical data that you can trust. So you have to spend time with people, and you have to build those profiles and then know how the gospel speaks into them. So this question again is for, uh, please, any of the uh, other speakers can feel free to make your case. Um, so this is specifically for Pastor Stoby and Femi. It says, what could be indicators of slipping off the centrality of the gospel in the pursuit of contextualizing the gospel? So for example, contextualizing the gospel to give a lot of hope in a hopeless community versus a therapeutic gospel. Mm. I'll look here. I'll, I'll, I'll well, I'll give you an example of uh, uh, a situation where I think guys slipped off. Um, and, and an American expression would be, uh, at times, you duck. You know, you, you, you dodge issues. So one of the ones in, in Berlin, and this church was planted in what used to be East Berlin. In that situation, it's very atheistic. Pretty much all young couples sleep with each other regularly out, out, outside of marriage. And there's a great deal of homosexuality, uh, that sort of thing. And the church that was planned there, was, it's, it's actually a really, really good church. It's done a really good job of preaching the gospel. But about four years into it, they began to duck on the sexual issues. Mm. They just simply didn't mention them. Mm. Or they decided not to, not to receive members because they didn't want to have to confront if you two are, li are, are living together, you can't do that anymore. That's not what a real believer does. Mm. So there's all kinds of ways that, that we can over-contextualize. Sometimes it's just by omission, or sometimes it's literally by not addressing an issue. So mm. Toby and I were talking the other day about kind of the contextualization issue. In South Africa, if a church is being planted, if that church is not sensitive and never discusses the very significant racial divides that are in that country, they are not addressing the gospel. They're not going after the issues. In, a, in an area that I planted a church, an extremely wealthy area in just outside of New York, I mean, it was so wealthy that you just, it's kind of beyond imagination. But <laughs> um, when I went there, I thought that the main idol of the people would be materialism. Okay, you know, just a simple uh, understanding of materialism that things will bring you, bring you happiness. Well, when I, when I got there, I realized nobody, not one person in that area was materialistic, although they were incredibly wealthy. But money equaled power. Mm. Power was actually idle. So I had to go after power. And if I didn't, I would have been ducking. I wouldn't have been addressing mm. the, the, the real issues of culture. So those would be some examples. 
The, um, this is sort of the step on, you know, so if we, if we identify where the areas are that we might be, able, might be slipping off, the antidote to that is preaching through all of Scripture, you know, so the expositional preaching kind of thing, if you preach through books of the Bible and you're faithfully resisting the temptation to actually not say what this is saying and you're literally going through it, at some point throughout your ministry, you're going to eat all of those, uh, those idols, um, and so th that's, that's a way to keep us honest, I think, in a sense, and, and faithful, is to literally preach through, uh, consecutively through books of the Bible. Yeah, I think that's something we need to hear in, 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 in our context that is so foreign. Um, um, you basically, we start off with a particular series, I want to preach on social media. Uh, and there's nothing wrong in that. I think if you do that three, uh, there's, it's okay to take certain topics and speak about them for you know, certain periods. But we've, we're, we're so lazy in terms of giving our people and challenging ourselves to go through the Bible. And as you said, then the agenda is set by the scripture. And see what Toby then was talking about, about the scripture being relevant for all times. Now, so, and just to be even more specific about the, hopeless, the hopelessness, right? That versus therapeutic. Versus therapeutic. And that's, that's hard, right? Because we are called to give hope to people. But you must always separate f the core of the gospel and the, the paradigm that the gospel then creates. They are two different things. For instance, the gospel offers hope, Romans chapter 8. Right? It offers hope, but it offers a specific hope. It offers a hope of eternal life. Right? We have eternal life now, but we haven't had it fully consummated. Now, because we have a gospel that offers eternal life, we can then paradigmatically shift at this level and then say hope is a powerful thing. But here's the problem. If you just preach hope alone, there are many people that have hopes for different things. And some of those hopes are anti-gospel hopes. Right? So some people have a hope that in some countries, and even in our country, maybe we would then be maybe somewhat more accepting, but let's say we would even legalize something like homosexual marriage. That's hope. And that hope can drive people to keep being activists. But that's not a hope that you and I would say we want to subscribe to. So you want to be able to be sure that you have the core of the hope. That core should stop you from when you are then trying to just preach hope for hope's sake, you know, you don't get off the rails. So you don't start offering people hope. For instance, like if somebody um, um, uh, loses their job, and said, so don't worry, just hope in God. You can get a job next week. Right? Because the gospel offers hope. No, the gospel offers hope of eternal life in Christ. That is guaranteed. Now, you don't want the person to lose hope. So you want to say, okay, because you don't, I don't want you to lose hope, don't, don't be down. Now, let's actively brush up your CV. Let's actively, you know, start sending you out to look for jobs. So that's not offering a hope, a pie in the sky kind of hope, where you are guaranteeing the person that is going to come. And I think in those kinds of ways, the, the core of the gospel stops us from going and deviating into things that God hasn't promised. Thank you. Um, so, so there's a question here for um, Pastor Jeremiah as well. It says, what could be indicators of sleeping off gospel-centered preaching when not necessarily quoting scriptures? For example, Jesus so you're telling a lot of stories, uh, talking, or Jesus telling a lot of stories, talking of sheep or water at the well, etc. 
sorry, I didn't understand the very first part of the question. Okay, so what would be indicators okay. of, of slipping off gospel-centered preaching when you don't usually use um, scriptures? When you don't usually use scriptures? Yeah, so you're, you're using, so using parables, Jesus' parables or illustrations to drive scriptural truth. Yeah. But not necessarily ex expositing scriptural passages. Yeah, I, so if I understand correctly, you're asking how do we know if we're slipping off if we're, if we're leaning on these stories? And uh, Well, I think first off, I, I would say that faithful gospel preaching emerges out of expositional preaching. So I see those as of the same fabric, not the exact same definition, but of the same fabric. So I would, in commending gospel preaching, I'm commending expositional preaching because I think seeing the text clearly our battery. Oh, there we go. Seeing the uh, seeing the text clearly is the responsibility of the herald, and going in and making that plain. So first off, I would say if if you're trying to preach regularly without preaching the scriptures and preaching through a passage, then you're not preaching. Uh, the herald works the text, but indicators that we're slipping off of gospel-centered preaching. I think it is the primary question that I always ask is how do your people leave, which is the question I ask. So that's one. If, if you're you're paying attention to your, your folks are downtrodden and are, are feeling like they've got a to-do list. Um, and I think even gospel-centered preaching, we can fool ourselves into thinking we're preaching gospel because we said the name of Jesus. But I think we actually have to understand how the implications of, of Jesus and his completed work answer the primary question or struggle of the text we're preaching. That if this is a grand story, as Femi was telling us, if, if the whole of the Bible is a single story and Jesus is her climax, to be able to make sense of any scene in the story, if I were trying to explain a movie to you, but particularly looking at one scene, and I didn't explain to you how that relates to the climax of the movie, you may come away with a very different understanding of what that movie is about. And so if I'm going to preach to you the story of God from any particular scene, I always have to figure out how this climax un unwinds that and, and solves the struggle of that issue. So you're slipping off of gospel preaching if Jesus is only mentioned in word only, if he's only mentioned in a sprinkled over in a prayer at the end, but he's not actually the solution to the passage that we're preaching. Um, anything else you guys would add to that or ways you'd... Yeah, I just want to be aware about there are movements that are trying to correct some of the bad things that we've been seeing. But sometimes I've been in part of movements that have tried to be corrective. We, we knew what we were against. Um, what we then became for was not better than what we were against. Um, so there are lots of Jesus only, and you guys have had that in the West before, Jesus only, red letter Christian kind of thing. Jesus only, we only preach Jesus. And the problem, I think, as Jeremiah is trying to identify, you're not, you shouldn't only talk about the person of Jesus, you should talk about the work of Jesus. As someone said, you should be able to preach a message that can't be preached in a mosque or a synagogue. Now, Jesus wouldn't be mentioned in a synagogue, but he could be mentioned in a mosque. And so the question is, which Jesus again? And so you have to be careful that it's Jesus as it's tied to the gospel, and that's why the gospel has to be specific. But uh, everything else that Jeremiah said about expository preaching, I think is really important because there you would not, you're not trying to, he is there. Jesus is there, his work and his gospel is there. You may have to do the, especially if you're preaching in the Old Testament, it doesn't immediately just come out because Jesus himself, Jesus the Christ of Nazareth doesn't, he doesn't show in the Old Testament. 
but there are so many patterns and there are so many there are different types, fulfillment motives, different kinds of things that we as pastors, if we don't know how to do that, well then get equipped to do those things. But we have to preach Jesus as him crucified. Don't forget that Paul didn't have the New Testament. And so all those guys, when they were preaching, they were preaching Jesus from the Old Testament. And so he, he's there. We just have to be able to be equipped to, uh, to find out how to do that. Thanks. Uh, and, and so just building on, on this question, um, particularly for Pastor Al and Pastor Toby and for any one of the other um, panelists as well, is um, so how do I, oh, someone who is here, how, how, how do people um, practically begin to develop these skills? Um, so again, we talked about training. Training is a big issue, but many people don't have access to so the funds are not available. How, how can a person um, begin to train uh, to, to preach better, to study scriptures better, to expose it better? What tips or what ideas? Um, one uh, um, critical thing that I just um, thought about as I listened to Jeremiah, by the way, I mean, we don't want to imitate guys, but that would be a good way to preach. Um, the, um, uh, the, I think get somebody to give you good p feedback would be one of the critical ways. So, so get expositional preaching. I think that's a helpful tool, you know, that you, in, in a sense, in self-study can do this. But ultimately, you never know. I mean, sometimes you feel the words dropping off of the front of the pulpit, but other times you just, it's really hard to know what exactly, you know, um, is the, how this is received, and your wife um, might not be the best benchmark. Um, um, and so, so I think what, you, what, what is helpful is to, to gather men around you, men and women around you, that can in honesty, you know, speak... Um, uh, to you about these things and, and, and be willing to take that. So we respond to that in such a way that it makes it easy for them to be honest uh, with you about this. And I think sometimes what we do is we only get people who are also in ministry to listen to us. So, so if you're part of a team, um, I think it's helpful to actually um, try and understand what people um, out there are also hearing. Uh, and the challenge is on a Sunday afterwards, they're all going to say nice things to you. Nobody is actually really very honest. Um, so to try and find that, I think at the very least, if you don't have that in your church or in your congregation where you typically do it, if you can record it and send it to somebody that can actually give you feedback, that might be another helpful way to develop. Um, and, and, and actually ask somebody whether you are developing. We've, we've had the situation with a guy who was with us for two years. He was preaching. Um, in our, we had, we've got preaching workshops on a weekly basis. He was preaching there once every three weeks. And literally over the space of two years, he didn't improve because you never actually took the feedback to heart. Um, and so I, so I think if you, if, you have, if you ask somebody to actually do that for you, have the humility to listen to that and say, I want to I sh sharpen this, this ax so that it gets better um, one way. So let me, uh, let me boot off that a little bit and actually um, add, a, add a couple of things. So it can be intimidating, actually, to ask people to give you feedback. You know, uh, you know, most pe many people won't. But what's easier to do, and so this is at a, at a more primary level, is you can gather with three or four or five friends who are all kind of young preachers and actually begin work together with no professor, but just you, you guys together and, and challenge each other. Write a message on this, you know, this passage. And then come together and literally criticize one another's sermons. Did you really preach the text? 
Did you actually preach what the text was saying? Did you get to Christ? Did you show how the gospel actually is the answer you know, to the issue? And it, that, it's, it's easier to be brutal with each other as peers than to get feedback from congregants or to ask somebody to evaluate their preaching. So I think that's one thing. You know, secondly, I think that there are actually a number of good sources on understanding how to preach. Uh, and you know, some of them may not be available here, but I know Christ-Centered Preaching uh, by uh, the guy from Covenant. Brian Chappell is really good. Uh, Keller has written a, a pretty good book on, on preaching. Uh, but beyond that, um, I would say read a lot of some of the best expositional preachers. They're readily available. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Spurgeon. I think you mentioned uh, Spurgeon. But there, there, there's a host of others. And, and, and by reading those things, now you can't use their illustrations because they tend to be dated or they tend to be in another culture. But you can see what they did to the text. In fact, when, t when Tim Keller, who I think uh, maybe Femi was saying, I, or somebody said the other day, that Keller may be one of the best preachers in the world at this point in time. But when, when he was going to New York, what he did is he sat down and listened to more than 300 of a very famous, uh, well, it's famous in our circles at least, British preacher by the name of Dick Lucas, who, who, pre uh, who pastored St. Helens, which is an Anglican church in, in, um, in uh, London. But he literally just listened to sermon after sermon after sermon to try to figure out how he did it. He did the same thing with the Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons. But then most of those, a lot of those sermons are in, are in now commentaries or, you know, there's sets that you can actually read. That can be incredibly helpful. Uh, you got to be careful not to just simply preach their messages, you know. <laughs> but uh, many people have done that with Keller, by the way. Uh, story, story? Story. <laughs> <laughs> I was down in rural Alabama. You guys may not know the United States at all, but that Alabama is in the southeastern United States, you know, very rural, that sort of thing. I go to a little uh, Presbyterian church. I'm Presbyterian. Forgive me for that. But, um, and I'm listening to this message. And as the guy is preaching, I think, boy, it's, it just doesn't fit this context mm. at all. Although it's biblical, you know, it's really good stuff. It, you know, these are primarily farmers that are sitting in this congregation. And, you know, he's talking about beauty and all this kind of stuff. And as I'm sitting there listening, I thought, you know, I've heard this message before. <laughs> but it, wa it wasn't actually Keller's. It was another guy that had preached in New York that was on the staff of Redeemer. And what had happened was this guy had heard this message, and he was moved by it. And he, was, he wanted to communicate this you know, to his audience. And it wasn't, I don't think it was, uh, what do you call it when you, when you copy somebody else? It wasn't plagiarism, you know, but he had taken the outline and that kind of thing, and he was trying to communicate it, but it just didn't fit the context, you know. So it's, it's not merely about preaching the gospel or preaching Christ. It's actually preaching the gospel and preaching Christ in such a way that it actually connects with the cultural narratives or what's, what, what's really operative in, in people's hearts. And let me just add that to be a good expository preacher, one funda fundamental thing is key, and that is no more of the Bible yeah. itself. Read and read and read the Bible. And one helpful way is actually to read from Genesis to Revelation. Not that you can do that at a go, but it is important to get the whole Bible story. And so how do I become a good expositor? Read the Bible. Read more of it. And then when Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching, when Tim Keller is preaching, when Sp Spurgeon is preaching, you can situate it in the right context. 
But if you don't read more of the Bible itself, even though these are being helpful, and I listen to Tim Keller a lot, I listen to Lloyd-Jones, but I think that the fundamental help that I have realized is to be able to soak myself more in the reading of the Bible itself. So I find the scriptures as the starting trainer for the expositor. Let me also say that um, we, we came for a conference in Abuja some time ago, and we were talking about expository preaching and or expositional preaching. And one African man said that, well, expository preaching is not for Africans. So what he was trying to say is this. We are storytellers. And the way we reason is that we, we reason in circles. And then we come to the point at the center. And that progressive or progression reasoning from what others will call sequential. logical, sequential, A, B, C, and therefore F. It's not so much the way we are wired. Well, whether it is logical reasoning, as they will put sequential reasoning, or it is secular reasoning, does not negate expository preaching. Because expository preaching in itself is, as the word says, exposing what is already there. And so it is not a cultural thing. Expository preaching is not for the worst. It is basically an attempt to be quiet and listen and say what you have heard, letting the text do the speaking, the text itself do the speaking. But how would you actually understand um, if you haven't listened to a lot more of the text? So if you are preaching, for example, um, Romans or the um, Corinthian passage that we looked at, if really a person has soaked himself um, or herself in understanding the scriptures in um, the way salvation is revealed in salvation history or whatever you will call it. It enables you, it equips you to be a better expositor because whatever you take, you take it within the context of the bigger gospel of Old and New Testament. You take the, the gospel, that aspect of the gospel that you're preaching at a particular time and place and within your mind and at the back of your mind, you're able to set it within its context. So what am I saying with this rumbling? Anybody who aspires to be a good expositor, the starting point is uncompromisingly reading more of the scriptures themselves. All right, so um, just, just on this before we move forward, um, again, so Pastor Jeremiah mentioned the first part. He talked about um, we being um, humble and then all of that, all of the three H's being grounded in identity as heralds. Um, so I, I, I want you and um, particularly Pastor Femi and Sami to speak to this African thing about the man of God. Um, um, because we talk about the, the humility that is necessary to be... Can you speak louder? Okay. I don't think I heard. You talk about the humility that is necessary to be, um, to identify as a messenger of the gospel but also our nature as heralds. So the message is not ours. The message doesn't come from us. Um, we, are, we are emissaries of another person. And yet we find in our culture and in our context that you know the whole man of God thing, I'm the man of God, I speak the words of God and all of that, presents, it's very opposite to what you've explained from scriptures. And so 
can just speak to that uh, so in my project. As we, as being the man of God, how yes. do you remain humble? Yes. So in the African context. No, in the African. So the, the man of God posture, okay. um, where the authority resides in me, okay. and so I, I say all these things because I'm the man of God. God speaks to me, and I communicate it. Versus one who is a herald, who's who the identity doesn't, re, uh, the authority doesn't reside in me. It resides in the message I carry. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, it's a great question, and I think it's the lines can certain bec certainly become blurred in our own hearts. Some questions that I have to ask regularly of my own ministry, my own life is: Am I am I impressed with myself, or am I impressed with the message? And as soon as I'm start, one of the ways that I start to know that um, that I have I have moved away from my identity as a herald is that. Uh, even when not in the preaching act, there's something intoxicating about the preaching act, is there not? Like, if we can just be honest, there's this moment where a room falls quiet and everybody is waiting to hear what you have to say. That is intoxicating, and it will lie to you. That act will lie to you. It will begin to lie to you and tell you you do have authority, and your opinion really does matter. And then when you step out of the preaching act, one of the ways you will begin to know that you have grown overly impressed with yourself is you will never listen to people. You're always the teacher. If you're a very poor listener who cherishes your own opinion on every matter over and above everyone else's, you have moved away from your identity as a herald who is impressed with the message but unimpressed with themselves. Um, and so if you talk way more than you listen, and you are convinced that your opinion carries greater weight on every issue because do you know that every week everyone gets silent and just listens to me? We can, we can believe the lie that all of a sudden starts to, to drive us away. So for me, trying to discern between uh, how to remain a herald is to continue to be so in awe of this God and the fact that I get to handle his word. And then when I'm in conversation or when I'm listening, realizing that I always have something to learn. I always want to be the learner. So that's been one way that I've tried to discern in my own heart. Am I overly impressed with myself? Do I talk more than I listen? If I'm starting to do that, I'm beginning to think the authority resides in me, which is a dangerous place to live. Um, one of the things in our culture, certainly the Ghanaian culture and the Nigerian culture, um, when people see me in other places, they ask me whether I'm Ghanaian or Nigerian. <laughs> they get confused. But one of the things that is there um, that is good and can be dangerous at the same time is the culture of respect. We respect authority and therefore respect the pastor. And he is a man of God. He is a person that speaks and who speaks and everybody is silent. I think testing my own heart, I do realize that when I have preached a great sermon, and people in our church, people greet as they go, and they, are, they sort of bow down a little bit, and they say something great about me, my heart enjoys it. And I think that almost of the time, my heart enjoys it. And sometimes I have literally battled. You see my body moving. Because on the one hand, I'm enjoying it. On the other hand, and so perhaps... One way of testing is let it r the respect to be there. That is a culture. It's how you manage it as a preacher, how you allow the Holy Spirit to enable you to direct where the glory should go.
but perhaps testing your heart to hear this respect and the bowing down and they, they call me Pastor Samuel or whatever it is. It's a place when everybody has closed and gone home. You sit in your study, in your quietness and test your heart, whether you actually enjoyed um, what was um, coming to you. There was a second thing I was going to say, but I've forgotten. <laughs> to you? As a man of God. Um, yeah, and, and, and this probably be our final question because um, we're coming to the end of this. But I, I really, you know, identify what Sam is saying. Um, coming back, when I was coming back to plan the church, one of the things I said I was going to do was, um, because, you know, all the friends I had, um, everyone, no one called them pastor in their churches. So I said, when I'm coming to Nigeria, nobody's going to call me pastor. And the first couple of guys we gathered around, you know, because then we hadn't started... It wasn't like a church itself. It was just a group. Everybody called me family. Once we started the church and more people started coming that didn't have that pastor, 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 up until the people that were, that didn't used to call me, that didn't used to call me pastor, all of them started calling me pastor. Then the next phase was when everybody started calling me sir. You know, like sir, sir. Until people that were literally my friends would say sir, sir. And you try to... Correct, but after a while, I, I found out my whole ministry was in trying to correct people, and they weren't listening to me, you know. So um, this thing about what Samuel is saying is that uh, there are certain things you, you can't always totally change a culture, but you can try to redirect the culture in a better and healthier way. So I, I quit trying to stop all those people who come, they kind of bow, but I determined that I was going to try to be a leader. This authority figure that people have seen, I'm going to try to be different in the way I behave such that if they're comparing myself with any of those people, that would, be, that would be different. And one of the things I would say, and I want to comment to everyone, Sami has said it, but I really want to comment to everyone. This is not thus says the Lord, but I would say to every, I, I comment to every Christian, but at least every pastor, try to go through the Bible at least once every year. Just try you know, take a particular pattern. I, I, I read a pattern which makes me all, apart from reading the whole Bible every year, uh, through the Bible every year, I read the book, uh, book of Luke twice, read um, Isaiah twice, read the book of Psalms twice. Um, oh, sorry. And, and why that is important is every day I'm confronted with something with my own sin. Because sometimes it's really difficult for me at that point when I've preached a fantastic sermon and they've come to meet me. You know, sometimes I even say to God, God, I know I'm not going to, I don't enjoy this. I'm not meant to enjoy this this way. But I'm going to enjoy this because there's forgiveness in Christ after, right? So I'm going to confess. I just want to enjoy it a little bit. And at that point, it's so difficult to get out of it. But when the first thing I do in the morning, and my wife knows this, when I go to bed, the, first, the, the last thing I do when I go to bed is to put my phone on airplane mode. Why? Because when I pick up my phone where I read my Bible, I don't want to see somebody's message. I don't want to see a, tw a Twitter notification. So I want to start with the word. Once I open that, I'm confronted with my sin first thing in the morning. The second reason is that it affects my preaching. So like this, um, uh, from September to November in our church, we're preaching on idols, and we're preaching on sex, money, and power. So this last uh, Sunday, we, we, the first on power, we're preaching from Nebuchadnezzar's. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar went to the rooftop? I said, oh, me, uh, the, uh, this great Babylon that I have built with my own power. I mean, once I opened that scripture to prepare, I was just confronted with my 
my own sin. Because whether you like it or not, sometimes you're like, wow. You know, when we started this church, there was only one person that was committed. But now look at what God has done, you know, through my gifts. And man, when you see what the ugliness, because what is essentially, when I, when I think like that, what the text is telling me is that you're a beast. You're thinking like a beast. And so at that point, you're forced to repent before God. So the, the means comes through the word, but we need to have certain kinds of spiritual disciplines that keeps us in the word and takes us through. Doesn't take us to all the different promises. Before you meet some of these uh, real preachers that say there are 1,200 and something promises in the Bible, how many of them have you read? No, you know, let's be mature and not be children. Go through the entire Bible. There are truly promises that are there, but also there are parts there that expose you so that God can take you out of unhealthy practices, give you the gospel that uplifts you. That will do so much to that ego that wants to start to, um, that people would want to help you fan to flame and actually bring your destruction. You may open, or you, may, you may multiply churches, you may have a big, a fantastic church, but let us be careful that on the last day, we don't go to Jesus and say, look at this church that I built for you. And you say, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. I don't know if somebody wants to say something. I'll well, I was just going to make a comment on this, on the, the particular question. Um, and I've, I've struggled with this thinking a number of times, but uh, Matthew 23, you know, tells us, I mean, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking to us, but he says, let no one call you rabbi for teacher, pastor, teacher, for you're all brothers. And it, then it talks about, you know, let, let no one call you father, you know, and yet, in, even in the evangelical church, okay, so we disdain the Roman Catholics who call their priest father, you know, that sort of thing. But then we don't apply it within the evangelical circles. And I think it's really, really dangerous. I'm, I'm really uneasy about the big man thing, either in Korea or in Africa, within African-American circles or Pentecostal circles in the United States. There's this exaltation of I'm a follower of this man. It's this man's ministry. These are my sons in the faith. And I don't know what to do with it, actually, because, it, you know, what you're saying is you try to kick against that culture, and then people almost force you to be called that. But the other day we were in Accra, and, and Sammy kind of used this, you know, to, to help gather leaders together. But, you know, in his invitation he said, the Reverend Dr. Alan Barth, the vice president of city to city, is going to be here. Well, in one sense, he was using that to, <laughs> to, to, to give greater credibility. And, and one of the things, yeah, well, one of the things I said to the guys when they gathered, just, you need to understand, I'm a son of farmers from Minnesota with a no-name education, with no real credentials to be standing before, before, before people. I'm just simply a brother. I'm, I'm a beggar who found bread in Jesus Christ and I've been transformed. And some, I think we need to do everything we can to resist this, the people lifting us up, because they'll push us that way. And as soon as they do, then we tend to enter into sin. We, we tend to give ourselves liberty to, to do things that we should not do. And it's just dangerous. It's it, dangerous to have people hanging on every, every one of our words. We need to constantly push them to Christ, which you know, is, it's just a, an important thing. So I'm not sure what to do with it, but it's, an interesting, it's interesting that you would ask that question. Yeah. I think the tension for us is, on the one hand, that is true, like what you, what you put there. And on the other hand, Paul can talk uh, about his ministry 
in fatherly terms and, and people that he's given birth to in the, in, the, in, the, in the gospel and that he can talk about Timothy as his own son in the ministry. And so that I, I also struggle with, if I slight pushback here, if I can do this to an elder, I actually struggle sometimes with mentor language because I think it's much more business, uh, taking more from the business circle Whereas in scripture, you do see a sense in which both from the Old and to the New Testament, so I've, I've been reading more Elisha and Elijah, and there is that sense in which there's a fatherly ministry. I think the problem, like we have here, is that authority, authority structures, patriarch, uh, patriarchy structures, all of those things are, the scriptures do present authority as a thing, but it's what you do with the authority that is the problem. And so in our culture where authority is already there, sin comes in and turns authority into power that uplifts the, the bearer of it and then oppresses those that are under. And I think scripture then, and through the gospel, gives us a better narrative of where you take power rather than use it to oppress people, it's actually to lift people up. But that when you have certain systems, I, I think of Paul in the Roman system of slavery, where Paul feels, look, this thing is such a huge, massive thing. Um, I'm called to preach the gospel. What I can do with, in the, in, in the case of um, Philemon and Onesiphorus is to say, you know what, I'm going to undermine this thing from within. The system is there, but I'm going to undermine it from within. This guy is your slave, is, is, is your master, but he's also your brother. So treat him as a brother and show that equality. The system still remains there. If you treat him as a brother within that system, because he's not totally, he's not totally, it's hard to just get rid of the system. He's going to be able to see within that system there's something much more humane. So I'll, I'll say trying to, um, uh, to undermine it from within, that's one. But also I think recover things like father, uh, um, um, fatherly ministry in a way that it, it is fatherly. It's not, it's not oppressive. It's not, I don't hang on to the words of every word of my father. I do argue with my father. We do disagree, but I honor him as my father. I honor him as someone who's had more respect. So there, may, there are people, I've told him, he doesn't like it, but he's like a father to me in the ministry. There are people, even though I'm probably undermining that now because I'm not <laughs> listening to him. But there are people, but I respect, you know, if I'm taking very huge, big decisions, I will call him, I'll call a number of people. They've gone in the faith. There are certain things they see in me that they may say, I think you should hold on. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about. It's just we would embrace it more in a formal way. But I, I totally take the point of we're, we're fighting against authoritarian and oppressive cultural power systems. But I think maybe trying to do it from within rather than spend our time just always trying to resist and say, don't do that. That's how we do it. All right, Simon has final word. And then well, we'll as the Reverend Dr. Albath has said, <laughs> <laughs> the father of the ministry, um, I'm just, I'm just picking on from um, the, ser the sermon talk we we've just heard about humility and honesty. And, and I'm realizing, that, I mean, you got me thinking faster than I would normally do. Um, this is from my own little experience in preaching. And that is I realized that one of the things that uh, keep me humble in the occasions when I have graciously been kept humble in preaching is that during preparation, I have preached the message to myself. 
Because anytime you stand in front of the people and you think that they need the message more than you do, somehow there is a problem. So the, the preacher is not ready to preach the message until the message is driven into his own heart. And that he has fallen flat in his study or wherever he prepares, flat on his face, and either worshiping or repenting or asking for true joy or whatever the passage is actually driving us towards Christ about. So I think when the message has dealt with us in the power of the Spirit uh, through God's grace, we stand in front of the people and we stand in front of the people with all courage and humility put together. And that is the case because we are not preaching to them as those who simply need the message. I'm preaching to them as a brother who has taken his portion of the message. And actually, in preaching to them, I'm doing double grace to myself because I'm preaching to myself twice. So I have found that to really help. Um, moments when I have preached and I felt um, so good about myself, are actually moments that I haven't thought through the implications of the message of the gospel for me in my study. And I've always thought, I know him, he's going through that, he needs, it, he needs to hear that. And spiritual arrogance has set in. But I would recommend uh, that perhaps we need to spend a lot more time on our knees when the message is done and the outline and it's on your iPad, asking the Holy Spirit to drive th this through us. And until that has drawn either tears of sadness that leads to repentance or tears of joy that leads to re rejoicing or hopefully will happen at the same time, if that is not happening, perhaps we are not ready to preach with humility and courage at the same time. Well, we'll, we'll end there. Thank you very much to the panel and uh, we're looking forward to